You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Happy birthday. Happy two-year birthday. For those of you who have poured into this community, into this church, um, to make everything possible, well done for those who have like sacrificed to be to get here early, to set everything up, to stay late, to break things down, to host things in your home. I uh, hope that you're looking around, seeing the fruit of your sacrifice. It's a beautiful thing to be a part of a church plant. And so, uh, my wife and I, Ashley, who's in the back, and daughter Juniper, uh, we planted Reality San Francisco about 10 years ago now. And so, what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to uh, talk about some of the lessons that I've learned the first 10 years of starting a church out of some uh, kind of both failure and things I've learned uh, as it pertains to our connection with Jesus. That's kind of what I want to do. So I want to talk about this idea of leaning back, and I want to come from uh, John 13, John 13. So if you have a Bible, turn there. I'm going to read our text this morning, and then I'll pray for us. John 13, I'm going to start in verse 21. Verse 21, I'll read, and I, I believe it might be, on, oh, there's on the screen. So if you didn't have your Bible today, uh, you lucked out, it's right on the screen. So verse 21, after uh, he, Jesus, had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he testified, very truly I tell you. One of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one of them he meant. Uh, One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter uh, motioned to the disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Who's going to betray you? And Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told them, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus had said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought that Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. This is God's word. Uh, Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I I thank you for this church. I thank you for this church uh, celebrating two years of ministry. And as uh, Riz said, um, you're just beginning what you're doing. I can see so much fruit coming out of this church and how this church is uh, both expressing and sharing the gospel in word and in deed. becoming a a family and ohana, and I also pray that it would wade into uh, the deep waters of of, um, learning how to reconcile culture and the church's culture over the the, the years with everything that Hawaii is and stands for, and I pray those two things would meld, and because of that, there would be fruitful gospel ministry and revival happening all over this island. Um, I pray for this morning specifically that you would give us ears to hear hearts to receive. I submit my, all of my capacity to you and ask that you would anoint me. I pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. 
Amen. So I lead a church in San Francisco, and as you may imagine, being a follower of Jesus in San Francisco and doing ministry in San Francisco is not an easy thing. Um, I've been in SF for uh, 10 years now, and reflecting back on these first kind of 10 years of ministry in San Francisco, I think the way that I would summarize ministry in a city like SF for me would be saying that what I tried to do with everything I had, with all of my capacities, was to lean in. I leaned into teaching, I leaned into leadership, I leaned into the voice that I believe God had given me, I leaned into leading, I leaned into opportunities that were before me, I leaned into community and making a sustainable life in an insane city like SF. I leaned into a lot of things. And I think for the most part, the message that we get from our culture, especially in cities, and to be honest, you guys know this, Honolulu is very much a city city. Everything that we get from kind of messages from our culture is to lean into everything. We're told to lean into our careers. We're told to lean into our relationships and the opportunities those bring. We're told to lean into ministry and personal growth and leadership. We're told to lean into family while still leaning to, into all the other things going on in and around our lives. Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, has a wildly popular book on women in the workplace called Lean In. And the message to, in Lean In is, as a woman, you need to lean into your career because, she says, men lean into their careers and women, women shouldn't be afraid of being ambitious. So, so now, here's the thing. Everyone's leaning in. Men are leaning in. Women are leading in. And I, I think there's a good place in our futures and our careers and in women's equality for sure for us to lean in. However, with all of us leaning in right now, and our cultural moment, everyone kind of pressing into everything, John gives us an enduring and vivid picture for what discipleship to Jesus looks like, and it's this idea of leaning back. In our text, it was the night of Jesus' betrayal. Jesus is enjoying the last supper meal with his disciples, giving them what would be the first communion meal. After dinner, Jesus removes his outer garment and he kneels down to wash the disciples' feet. This was an act reserved for slaves. And as Jesus gets down around the table washing their feet, of course, you might know the story. Peter says, no, 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 you can't, you can't wash my feet. There's no way in the world you're going to stoop down and wash my feet. And Jesus says, if, you don't, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. Of course, being very ambitious, Peter says, then wash my whole body. And Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, time out. We never said anything about washing bodies. So I'm going to wash your feet, and you're going to chill out. So, that's what, so that, that happened. So after supper, they're all sitting around a table. Now, there weren't chairs in, the, in these days. The table would have been a really low table. It would have been in the shape of a U. Uh, the, the, the disciples would have been sitting on the outside of the table so that servants can serve on the inside of the table. They would have been leaning on their right, on their left side so their right arm could be could be reserved for eating. So they're lit, they're lounging, they're sitting on pillows, they're sitting on the floor, they're sitting on their side, there's a low table, they're all eating. And as they sat there reclining, Jesus starts to explain how one of his closest 12 friends will betray him. Right in the middle of this whole beautiful Last Supper scene, Jesus starts to say someone in the room is going to deceive him and turn him in and betray him. And the room at that moment gets incredibly tense. 
You thought meals with your extended family were awkward. This is really, really awkward right here. Judas is sitting there with hatred in his heart, tired of Jesus' teachings, tired of Jesus' promises, sick of the way Jesus and Jesus' life is going, the way his way is going, and he finally agrees to help get rid of Jesus. Judas is plotting to betray Jesus, and at this moment, Jesus knows it. One mystical writer says this about betrayal. He says, betrayal is more than separation or rejection. To betray is to use the secrets of a person's personal life, thoughts confined to a friend, and to turn against that person. To use their confined, confided thoughts or words in order to hurt and defile them, to destroy a reputation. Judas betrayed Jesus. He knew the secrets of Jesus. He knew Jesus' thoughts. He even knew where Jesus would be that night. Think about this. Judas even knew that Jesus would go quietly, that Jesus would not put up a fight. And Jesus, during this meal, is no longer able to contain his emotion. He's no longer able to contain his anguish. And he starts to tell his closest friends, someone tonight is going to betray me. Look at verse 21. It actually says this. Jesus was troubled in spirit, or that word in Greek is he was in anguish. And he testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. It's like Jesus isn't able to hold on to this information anymore. I don't know if you've ever been there in your own humanity where you can't emotionally hold on to a piece of information anymore when you're around the people that you love the most. You know something, you know some secret, you know some, something going on, and you're around your closest friends, the people that you love, and you emotionally can't hold on to it anymore, so you, you have to start like, emotionally like, releasing. This is exactly what Jesus is doing here. And the disciples at this moment are stunned. They're shattered by this revelation. And maybe not so much by what Jesus said, but by the way Jesus would have said it. He probably said it trembling, his voice quivering, his words told through tears. Jesus is not ice cold at this moment. And finally, Judas leaves the room in the strangest exchange in the New Testament, I think. This is super, super weird. Jesus says, hey, someone in this room is going to betray me. And, um, and Peter turns to the beloved disciple and says, ask him who it is. Who's going to betray him? And the, and the disciple whom Jesus loved is leaning on, next to Jesus and like, Lord, and you remember, they're leaning on the ground. Lord, who's going to betray you? He goes, I'll tell you who's going to betray me. I'm about to dip this bread in this cup, and I'm going to hand it to the person betraying me. So he goes, dips it, and he goes, Judas, this is yours. Judas is like, uh, thank you? And he like eats it. And everyone in the room is going, what is happening? What's going on right here? And then G Jesus looks at Judas right in the eyes and says, whatever you're going to do, do quickly. And Judas is like eating the bread. Like, okay, 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 I'm, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. And he leaves. And everyone around them is going, what's, why did he leave? What's going on? Oh, he's probably giving money to the poor. He's probably going to go handle the affairs of tomorrow. He's probably doing something. We don't know. That was super weird. Anyway, and that's kind of how it ends, right? Now, when Judas finally leaves the room, John makes this comment in his gospel. He says this in verse 30. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Now, why does John say it was night? Because it was night. That was, that's the first reason. 
because that's why. But also, John loves to play with the light and dark metaphor in his gospel. He loves playing with the light and dark metaphor. He does this from the very beginning of his book. Look at John 1.4. He starts off his book like this. In him, Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light and dark, day and night. John loves playing with these polarities. And so here, when Jesus, who is the light of the world, is betrayed, John says, and it was night. Why? Because it was night, but also because Judas was turning away from the light of the world and stepping into the deepest darkness and most cold place anyone has ever known. Judas was rejecting Jesus' love. It started by Judas not uh, trusting Jesus or losing his trust in Jesus. It progressed by opposing Jesus, which we have several accounts of in the Gospels. And it culminated by outright rejection of Jesus' love. And from that point on, what John is saying is that no light could come into him anymore. Judas not only stepped into the darkness, Judas was in darkness. And in darkness, you make some of the worst decisions a human can make. But during this dark scene, we are given another polarity. Now, this is about to get better, because you're probably going, on our two-year anniversary, why are we talking about betrayal and darkness? This does not sound uplifting. Okay, this is what John does. Right at the same exact time, John gives us another polarity. He gives us another contrast to the darkness that Judas is in, that Judas is in. And he is this unquote, unnamed disciple. We don't know who he is, but we kind of know who he is, right? He's the writer of this gospel, John. But we don't know who he is in the way this narrative is told. We're only told it's the disciple whom Jesus loved. See, as Judas is plotting betrayal, there is a disciple at the same time who's literally leaning back on Jesus' chest, who is so close to Christ in warm fellowship and intimacy, who is there in trust, who is there in comfort. The text almost makes it sound as if this disciple gets closer to Jesus after Christ confesses his agony because it says in the text that he's reclining next to Jesus and then when Jesus confesses how he's in anguish, it says that he's leaning back on Jesus. It's almost as if he feels Jesus' heartbreak and leans back on him in loving intimacy. Like I said, we are not told who this disciple is next to Jesus. This person is not named by name. It just says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which, is, which I really like because it could be any of us, all of us. It could be any disciple whom Jesus loves. Okay, so here's, here's the polarity. Judas rejects Jesus' loves and steps into darkness. This beloved disciple absorbs Jesus' love, draws near Jesus' love, literally places his body up next to Jesus' body. Now, I know this is extreme, but if you've ever read the writings of John, he's a black and white kind of person. And what John is saying here at the end of his gospel is this. Take it or leave it, but this is what John is saying. 
you are either moving away from Jesus's love in more and more rejection, Judas, or you are drawing ever near to Jesus's love in intimacy. That's it. Light, dark, rejection, or intimacy. John draws these, these stark parallels, and he's doing this at the very end of his story. Now, let's turn our attention for a minute to meditate on the image of this beloved disciple. As they are reclining around this table, remember, no chairs, just cushions, this disciple is leaning back on Jesus. It says that, it says that he's on Jesus' chest, or in some translations, he's on his bosom. Now, we don't use the word bosom anymore. That's like not a word that we use in our language. But that's what a lot of, some of your Bibles say, that he's on Jesus' bosom. And when you put your head on someone else's chest, your ear is just above that person's heart so that you are able to hear their heartbeat. Now think about this for a second. The disciple whom Jesus loved is leaning back on Jesus. His head is on his chest. His ear is just above Christ's heart, able to hear his heartbeat. And with that picture, we get John's ultimate image for discipleship. For John, next slide, a disciple is someone who is leaning back on Jesus, hearing his heartbeat, and from that perspective, looking out into the world. This is what discipleship is for John. It's being so close and so intimate with Jesus that your, your ear is literally on his heart, and you're listening to his heartbeat, and then you're looking out into our crazy world. My friend, uh, one of my closest friends, uh, has a son named Moses. And Moses, um, when he was about 10 years old, um, I spent, we spent some time uh, vacationing with him. Moses loves to cuddle. He loves to kind of lean back. The first time I spent significant time with their family and with Moses was in um, Kauai uh, a few years ago. And they were there, and Ash and I flew there, and we met them. We spent like a couple weeks there together as families. And when I get to the beach, uh, we were in Hanalei. When we got, we got there, um, we met them at the beach. And I get uh, to the, to, we get to the, to the beach, and um, Moses is in the ocean already. And so he sees me. He's like, Dave, come out and swim with me. Come out. And so he just so energetic. So I go out there. We just landed. We get out. I get out into the water. And um, is that me? It's probably me, huh? Is that better? That's not better. Should I go for hand? Handheld? Okay, so Kauai, Hanalei, get off the plane. Moses is in the water like, Dave, come play. So I jump in the water, and we're playing. And he wants me to throw him in the water, so I'm throwing him as far as I can. And he swims up next to me, and he like just like swims up and just cuddles my body, and then he gets right in my face, and he's like, throw me again, I throw him again, he does the same thing over and over. One time, I throw him as far as I can, he swims up, he swims up right to my face. He's like, his face is in my face. He's like, Dave, when we're done playing, can we go onto the beach and cuddle? And I was like, I don't, I have no idea. I have to ask your parents. I don't know if that's, I don't know the rules around this beach cuddle thing. And um, I wanna say yes, but I, honestly, Mo, I don't know. I don't know. This is, this is the idea here. This is the idea to be like, you want to be so close to Jesus. 
like almost, this is almost awkward, to be honest, right? Like, John, can you imagine walking into a room and then this one man is leaning on another man's chest and is on his ear and he's just like, Lord, who's going to betray you? It's not me. I'm like on your chest. Like, it's not me. This is exactly the John, when he closes his gospel, he's like, this is the image of discipleship. It's not going to the nations, though that is what, how Matthew ends. For John, who's the mystical writer, by the way, you want to know what discipleship is? It's being this close to Jesus. Over and over again, he describes himself in the gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. It is all about love for John. When John writes his, his, his writings in 1 John, he says, love one another. And all of it comes from being this close to Jesus. And this is the enduring picture we get from him of what discipleship looks like. We would, what we would do is we would see our chaotic world, and our world feels like it's getting crazier. What we would do is we would see our crazy world from the place of being next to Jesus with our kind of like our, our ear on his heartbeat. And I would even say, not just being attuned to Jesus' heartbeat, but I would say being attuned to Jesus' blood pressure. And I need this. There are so many things that I see in our world that makes my blood pressure go up, that makes my heart palpitate. Um, before, I took a sabbatical a few years ago, and before my sabbatical, I went to my doctor, and I said, there's something wrong with my heart. It won't stop beating and fluttering in a weird thing, and I think I have something that's so rare that I, you, that I looked it up on Google. It's real, and I think you need to fix me, and I'm in trouble. And he, like, you know, does this stuff, tests, and he says, you're fine, you're stressed, you need to not be stressed. I'm like, okay, great. Can you give me a pill for that? Is there something I can take? He's like, I'm not giving you a pill for that. And I realized this sort of thing where your blood pressure rises because of anxiety and stress, there, I mean, there probably is a pill, but it's not healthy. There's a posture, not a pill. And the posture, I know I'm speaking to a bunch of people that live in Hawaii, so your posture is like, what are you talking about? Posture is living in Hawaii. I know. But it, ultimately, it's being this close to Jesus, with his heartbeat in your ear. And I think somewhere in pastoring the church for the first probably seven years of the church, I lost sight of this. You can lose sight of this even in ministry. Judas was, close, was a close follower of Jesus. And for me, what, for me, what I had, I had my eyes and ears pressed up against my church and their needs and the city and its complexity and what I thought it needed and what I thought everyone else needed and wanted around me. See, when you walk in close intimacy with Jesus, you come to realize that what any city needs, what any people needs, are those of us who are close enough to Jesus to hear his heartbeat and then tell everyone else where that is. Come close to Jesus. This is Jesus' heart. This is how Christ's heart's beating. It's leaning back on Jesus with our heart there. See, this disciple's location is also probably intended to tell us something about him. He's reclining near Jesus' chest. Now, this is a really, really, really important thing. This is where knowing Greek is, comes in handy. This is, I don't know Greek, but I read people that do know Greek. So this is where knowing Greek comes in handy. Where the disciple was in relation to Jesus is exactly where Jesus was in his relation to God, according to John's prologue. Let me say this again. This is so important. Where 
John or this disciple was in relation to Jesus is exactly where Jesus was in relation to God the Father according to John's prologue. Let me show you. John 1.18 says this. Now no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Now the best way to read this translation is in Old King James because it gets to the point a lot quicker. Does anyone in here have Old King James Bible still? Like with them right now? At least one person? No one? One. Good job. Two. No, that's not, not two. Sorry. Um, one person. Great. This is what it says in Old King James. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And look at what John 13, 23 says in Old King James. Now there was leaning, leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Do you see the connection? What John is saying is the beginning is, you know where Jesus is from? The bosom of the Father. And you know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to make the Father known. And at the end of his gospel, you know what he says? I am at the bosom of Jesus. And guess what I'm here to do? I'm here to make Jesus known. Do you see the connection there? The same, this is the exact same word in Greek, meaning that the disciple is as intimate with Jesus as Jesus was with the Father. Or if that's too theologically strong for you, it's at least this. John is at least saying that this disciple relates to Jesus as Jesus relates to the Father. And the implications of that for me and for you as followers of Jesus is this. Being close to Jesus has revelational relevance, meaning... As we're close to Jesus, we can make Jesus known. The reason why Jesus made the Father known is because Jesus is from the Father. The reason why John can make Jesus known and write a whole book about Jesus was because John was this close to Jesus. And the implications are the same for you and me. If we want to tell our friends about Jesus or make Jesus known in our life, we have to be close to Jesus. We must be close to Jesus. We must be near him. And when we are near him, we make him known. That's what John is saying. Now, let me get practical because I know some of this lives in like abstractness. Okay, be close to Jesus, lean on his chest, all this stuff. Okay, great. I'll do it. But how do I do that? So I want to give you like three practical ways that you can begin cultivating intimacy with Jesus. So first is this. What does leaning back require? What does it require of us? Number one. You have to show up. That's the first thing that, that intimacy with Jesus requires, showing up. Ronald Roheiser, one of my favorite writers, says this about prayer. He says, there is no bad way to pray, and there is no one starting point for prayer. All the greatest spiritual masters offer only one non-negotiable rule. You have to show up for prayer, and you have to show up regularly. What Roheiser means by there's no bad way to pray, he says this. You can pray sitting down. You can pray standing up. You can pray on your knees. You can pray out loud or in your head with worship music playing or in silence on a walk or in your bed. There's only one non-negotiable rule. You have to show up, and you have to show up regularly. See, I have, my, I have clinically off-the-charts ADD. I am so distracted by so many things so easily. I'm distracted by the thought of being distracted and what I'll do if I get distracted. And then that distracts me, and then it's gone, right? I have really, really bad ADD. During my sabbatical, 
one of the things I journaled was that my single biggest weakness in prayer is regularity. So when I say that this comes harder for me than most, you have to show up to Jesus regularly, I mean it. Like, it's hard for me too. I know you're like, but you're a pastor and you kind of get paid to be close to Christ. I, I get that. But this, this is like a non-negotiable. Have you ever seen the, um, well, it's a funny question to ask this group. The movie, 50 First Dates? Okay. If you've not seen that movie, shame on you, for one. Shame, just shame on you. Two, I'm going to blow the whole movie for you so you don't have to watch it anyway. So I'm sorry. Someone said no. You've had so many years to watch this movie. And it's on you. It's on you at this point. Drew Barrymore, Adam Sandler. Doesn't get better than that. Drew in this movie has short-term memory loss and can't remember one day to the next, okay? All the new people she meets and even falling in love with Adam Sandler's character is completely lost on her. By the end of the movie, I'm jumping to the end now, so close your ears if you haven't seen the movie, but you're going to miss out on a really good point. Um, by the end of the movie, in order to progress and move on in her life, she is given a video to watch that she watches every morning when she wakes up. And this video details her life, what happened to her, how she fell in love with Adam Sandler's character, and the life she now lives. And every morning she goes through the emotional roller coaster of realizing who she is. And what I've learned and what I figured out in my spiritual journey with Jesus is that my life is a lot like that. No matter how good my day was with God, I go to bed, I wake up, and I forget everything that happened the day before. I do. I could be the best day with God ever, and I go to bed, and I wake up, and I'm like, who am I? What did I do yesterday? What day is it? I don't wake up going, oh, yesterday with the Lord, it was the best day ever. Yesterday, church, two-year anniversary, oh, I wake up going, who am I? Where am I? What time is it? What day is it? I completely forget, and I don't know if this will change as I get older or it'll get worse as I get older. I have no idea. So what I have to do every single morning, I have to spend time reacquainting, being reacquainted with who I am in Christ. I have to wake up praying. I have to put that video in, so to speak, and remind my soul who I am in Christ, what Christ has done for me by redeeming me, what it looks like to walk in fellowship with God and obedience with him today. I have to tell myself that I'm a pastor, I'm a minister, I've been saved by Christ, my identity is in him. I have to do that every single morning because I wake up, like Drew Barrymore, forgetting. So I have to lean back every morning. Every morning I've made a discipline of being silent, reminding myself who I am in Christ, and there's these questions I ask myself. Questions, two questions, and then there's like a bonus question. And they're this. Was my heart warmed? When I pray in the morning, was my heart warm? Was it calmed? Was my heartbeat set to the pace of Jesus' heartbeat? The second thing I asked was, was my identity recalled? Who I am in, in God, in God's world? Am I reminded of that again? This is God's world, and I'm a part of that world and the bonus question, which I don't always get to, but is, was my life directed? Do I know how to enter into the day-to-day -day as a follower of Jesus? So the first thing is we have to show up to God. If you feel distant from God and you're not showing up to him regularly, start there. Start showing up to God every single morning. Second thing, you have to put away distraction. This is hard for us. This is really hard for me. Imagine this disciple leaning back against Jesus, and then his phone starts buzzing and blowing up. 
just in his cloak, right? Just leaning on Jesus, having a moment. His phone's just going, bring, bring, whatever, right? And Jesus is like, are you going to get that? Because everyone's distracted. This is horrible. You're ruining everything. Like that sort of thing. One of my, one of my favorite sayings, I even, I use it, I started on my sabbatical, but I, I even used it yesterday, is let's just not know. That this is, if you get anything from the sermon, get this. Let's just not know. You know how that thing where um, when uh, you're in a, in a, at a dinner or hanging out with a friend and you're like, who, was, who else was in that movie with Adam Sandler? And he's in all that. I don't remember his name. Everybody grabs their phone. And as soon as you grab your phone, everybody's like, oh, you grabbed your phone. I grabbed my phone. And then all of a sudden you're on Instagram and then you're on like this wormhole of YouTube. You have no idea how you got there. And you look up and you're still with your friends. Everybody's like, like that sort of thing. One of my favorite things is, like, who is it? I'm like, you know what? Let's just not know. What does it feel like to not know something anymore? Like, you hold on a piece of information. You're like, I don't know the answer to that question. You know what? I'm not going to go to my phone because I'm going to be present here with you, and I'm not going to know. And I'm just going to carry this, like, not knowing, and I'm going to ask the next person I talk to, like, hey, do you know the answer to this question? But don't pull out your phone. Do you know the answer to this question? Like, no, I don't know. Like, I don't know either. This is crazy. And you guys have this bond together about not knowing something. <laughs> we need this back. Like, one of the things that happened when I was on sabbatical was Ash and I were in this conversation. We were in Rome, and, you know, Rome has a lot of pigeons, just like Hawaii does, just like San Francisco does. And I'm like, have you ever, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? Ash is like, no, I've never seen a baby pigeon. I'm like, I wonder what they look like. She's like, I don't know. I'm like, I don't know either. And she grabs her phone. I'm like, no, no, no. Let's just not know. <laughs> and then the next person we'd hang out with, like, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? They're like, no. <gasps> I've never, oh my gosh, I've never seen, and ever, no one I've talked to, maybe you've seen one, no one, I've, don't look it up, don't grab your phone, no one I've talked to has ever seen a baby pigeon, and then it freaks you out, because you're like, wait, I've seen baby everythings, why haven't I seen a baby pigeon, what do they, how are they keeping this a secret, these pigeons, and then you start respecting pigeons, because they can keep a secret, right, my theory is they come straight from hell, full grown, that's my theory. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I've never looked it up. I still don't know what baby pigeons look like to this day. But here's the thing. Our culture is a powerful narcotic for good and for bad. The good in a narcotic is that it soothes and protects against raw pain. Our culture has in it, within it, the very kind of thing from medicine to entertainment to shield us from suffering. And that's a good thing sometimes. But sometimes that can be a very bad thing. Narcotics can also be bad, especially when it becomes a way of escape, escaping reality. Our cultural narcotics shield us from having to face the dip, deeper issues of our life. From faith to forgiveness to morality, even mortality. Things like our phones and entertainment can be set against the interior life by keeping us so preoccupied and so distracted that we lose focus of the deeper things of our life. You might be having a ton of pain because of some unresolved issue that you have with your family, but looking at Instagram is a good way for you to soothe that pain and get yourself distracted. You might have this thing that's going on with your community group that you know you have to deal with, but it's way easier to binge watch Netflix than dealing with this stuff. Some of that can be good when you're hit with so much of life and you need a little tiny bit of a narcotic to soothe the pain. But when it becomes the way that you cope with your life, it's keeping you from dealing. It's keeping you from showing up to your life. So one of the things that we have to do, and 
what I've done for our church is that I made these cards, these prayer cards, that you don't need your phone to, to, to go through. Because most of us keep our, our Bible on our phone and our journal on our phone. And so we do quiet time when we like are like reading something like, oh my gosh, and we screenshot it and we Instagram post it, best thing ever. Then you're on Instagram and then you're on Facebook, you know, all that stuff, right? Like, put away your phone. Be, be alone. And I made, we made these cards. That all you need is a, this card and a Bible and you can spend time with God. And everyone asks for it in digital form. We're like, no, you can't have it in digital form. That, that's, that destroys everything. We need analog, be with God. And so what I've done is this. Put your phone away in the morning. Be with God alone without distraction. If you can, without distraction. And what this starts to do is things start to come up for you that you've been pushing off and not dealing with. And God presses in and allows you to deal with it. Last thing. So you need to show up. You need to put away distraction. And the last thing is you, you need to let go. There, I would imagine in this room, this size, there are a lot of like visionary leaders in here, meaning that you can see the future, like a future life, future world, and order your world to make that world happen. There are many of, uh, of you in here, I would imagine, that take objects like numbers and code and materials and relationships and opportunities even maybe even companies, and bring them under the agenda you have for shaping the world according to your own desires and purposes. And some of that is beautiful and good. And then when we go to God, in the same way you attempt to order your world, you attempt to use God to produce your own transformation. We try to manipulate God to bring about the changes that we decided we need in our lives. And what we really need to do, what you really need to do, is release control of your relationship with God to God. We need to sit before God, and this takes silence. And I really, really, really learned this as someone that I'm an extrovert, so I love being around people. For me, it takes being silent. This is actually an ancient spiritual discipline that needs to be recovered in our digital age. Sitting in silence, without music, without a phone, without a computer, just sitting there. And trying to stop to control our life with God. We let go and let God be God. So here's a, a quote from a book I read uh, during my sabbatical. The practice of silence is the radical reversal of our cultural tendencies. Silence is bringing ourselves to a point of relinquishing to God our control of our, of our relationship with God. Silence is a reversal of the whole processing or possessing, controlling, grasping dynamic of trying to maintain, maintain control of our own existence. Silence is the inner act of letting go. This is a really important thing to do. You can do this anywhere, but sitting silent. Then I read this book called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. It says, without the regular experience of being received and loved by God in solitude and silence, we are vulnerable to a kind of leadership that is driven by profound emptiness that we are seeking to fill through performance and achievement. This hit me so hard. Instead of trying the next thing, instead of trying to fill this void that we have through the next endeavor, through the next leadership experience, the next class, the next whatever, allowing ourselves to sit in silence and let God work on us in silence. See, maybe Judas was following Jesus to try and control Jesus. Maybe Judas was driven by such a profound emptiness that when he started to realize Jesus wouldn't bend to his will, he decided to get rid of him. 
But the enduring picture of discipleship we get from John is leaning back on Jesus, showing up without distraction, letting go of our control of whatever happens to Jesus. See, I know our world has been an insane place the last couple of years. But I'll leave you with this. The only way to get true perspective in what's going on and to have a real capacity to do something about it is, this, is from this place of leaning back on Jesus. Would you bow your head and close your eyes and pray? let's pray. Jesus, you invite us to a beautiful intimacy. You invite us to a place of, of knowing you and being known by you. Even at the point of where it kind of can feel, even in our bodies sometimes, awkward. I can imagine being so close to you, that close to you, where I'm leaning back on you can be even physically awkward. I pray that you would help us to push back past these barriers. For, for those of us in here that have not uh, maybe s- stood before and raised our hands to you or never come forward and kneeled or whatever it is that we would kind of break past these barriers and start cultivating some real intimacy with you, God. Jesus, I thank you that you show up to us when we're, when we're willing just to be open to showing up to you. Jesus, you, you said that you're looking, the Father is looking for those who are, who are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And I pray that you would find a lot of people willing to do that. Draw near to us right now, God.